There's an old story about Pauline Weaver, the guide, scout, and prospector who traversed Arizona numerous times in the 1800s. Though he generally was on good terms with the various Amerindian tribes that inhabited the territory, that didn't shield him from danger completely. Sometime in the mid-1860s, he was ambushed by a group of Yavapai, who seriously wounded him. Fearing the end was nigh, Weaver did something that probably wouldn't occur to you or I. He started singing. Specifically, the old mountain man broke out into a death song, a tradition he had learned from the Plains tribes he had met long before stepping foot in Arizona. So, he started singing, waiting for the moment when he would slip off this mortal coil and pass over to the other side. Except death never came. See, the Yavapai didn't know anything about this tradition. From their perspective, this bearded white man they were all set to kill had just started belting out complete and utter nonsense. They must have looked at each other for a second, unsure of what to do. And, the story goes, they decided to do nothing. Thinking that Weaver had gone insane and was now babbling incoherently, they decided to up and leave the poor man to himself. I'm not sure how long Weaver sat there, singing his death song before he realized that the Yavapai were gone and that he wasn't going to die that particular day. But eventually it became clear that he was going to live. So he picked himself up and dragged himself home to recover. Pauline Weaver, scout, guide, prospector, mountain man, would live to fight another day. I once said that stories are where history really comes alive, and I think this incident with Weaver proves that point. And, with your permission, I have a few more stories I would like to tell today. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 59, This Is Your Life. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we wrapped up the 1860s by watching the fortunes of war turn against Cochise. With us bringing that decade to a close, I thought it was a good time to push pause on the forward narrative. But seeing as there were still two weeks until I go on my wedding hiatus, I looked around for something to talk about that wouldn't be too hard to research because... Holy cow, well, I'm helping plan a wedding right now, and that is eating up so much of my brain power. Then I had a bolt of inspiration. You see, though I've tried to flesh out some of our players where I could, how and where they get introduced really depends on the course of the narrative. And there are other really important people who have just been kind of off to the side this whole time with no good way of shoehorning them into the story. Finally, once a person has made their main contributions to Arizona history, they just kind of slip away at a certain point because their later lives and deaths are just not important to our story. So today, I'm going to fix some of that by taking you through the lives of five prominent Arizonans who have been and will continue to be so important in the territory's development. 
Most are people we've dealt with at length now, but still need a supplemental biography. And one is an important territorial leader who usually just gets a passing reference in the history books. So, where do we start? Well, let's wrap up the life and times of Pauline Weaver. Now, I gave a good amount of background on Weaver in episode 44. Plus, he has popped up in our story since the mountain men first came to the area, so we are kind of familiar with him. Weaver was noted for helping guide the Mormon Battalion and the California Column across southern Arizona, plus finding gold placers near La Paz and modern Yarnell. Something I did forget to mention back in episode 44 is that state historian Marshall Trimble tells us that he was half Cherokee, which goes a long way toward explaining his ease among various Amerindian tribes. Speaking of his relationship with the natives, Trimble relates that Weaver basically gave a code phrase to the tribes he was friendly with to make sure they were treated fairly by other Americans. Based on his standard gift to them, these Amerindians were instructed to approach whites and say, Pauline Tobacco. This phrase would let the Americans know the natives were friendly. It worked well enough for a space of time in the 1860s, before too many Americans showed up who either didn't know or didn't care about this custom. Also, remember how Weaver was injured by those Yavapai at the top of today's episode? Well, according to Trimble, after they learned that the random, possibly insane white guy they attacked was actually Pauline Weaver, they sent regular messages over the course of months inquiring about how their friend Paulino was doing. Though the Yavapai didn't kill him, Weaver did die a few years later on June 21, 1867. He was buried with full military honors in Camp Verde for his role as an army scout during the Mexican-American and Civil Wars. However, when that military post was eventually abandoned, his remains were dug up and taken to California. But in 1929, poet historian Charlotte Hall who we might have to dedicate a whole episode to at some point, organized a campaign to bring Weaver's remains back to Arizona. A combination of Boy Scouts and school children eventually raised enough funds to have Pauline Weaver buried for good on the grounds of the old territorial capital in Prescott. I personally feel that the old scout and mountain man is criminally neglected in most tellings of state history. Though, if you look around... You can find his name everywhere. He has a ghost town, pass, wash, creek, peak, mountain, and mountain range named after him, in addition to the geological feature of Weaver's Needle in the Superstition Mountains, which is where I first heard his name. And you know, that's not a bad legacy if you can get it. All right. So our next contestant is none other than that old Confederate soldier turned Union Scout, Jack Swilling. We've dealt a lot with Swilling since he first showed up chronologically to capture Captain William McCleave at the mail along the Gila back in episode 39. He was also a major player two episodes back, what with the whole idea to start farming in the Salt River Valley thing. During that episode, I mentioned that Swilling was originally from Georgia. So, this is a good chance for me to issue a small correction. Swilling was actually born in South Carolina, though his family did move to Georgia during his teenage years, and he would later return there several times. 
He was born John William Swilling on April 1st, 1830, and was the eighth child of a plantation manager who had married the daughter of the plantation owner. As a young man, he enlisted with some other volunteers from Georgia for the Mexican-American War, but would wind up in either Missouri or Alabama in the early 1850s, where he would marry and have a daughter. His first wife ended up dying young, and Swilling would just abandon his daughter and ride out west. He found work in Texas with the Butterfield Overland Mail, which would keep him occupied until the Civil War broke out. After that, his movements are pretty well documented in this podcast already. He pledged his service to Colonel Baylor in 1861 for the invasion of Arizona, and was with Captain Hunter in Tucson, became a civilian after the Confederates retreated, then pledged his help as a scout to the Union. He was in Pinos Altos and took part in the capture of Mangas Coloradas, that was back in episode 42, and was part of the Walker Party in 1863 that discovered gold in Prescott. After this, we find him in Tucson, and on April 11, 1864, he married a young Mexican girl named Trinidad Mejia Escalante. Despite being literally twice the age of this 17-year-old girl, the marriage was a successful one, and Trinidad would bear him seven children. Also, the pair would raise two Apache orphans. And like I said, two weeks ago we caught up with him helping found Phoenix. But ever the wanderer, after the official site for Phoenix was chosen, just a few miles from his property, he decided to pull up roots again and head off seeking adventure. He settled at a place near the town of Gillette in Black Canyon, which he named Tip Top. So now we have to deal with the more problematic aspects of his character, which will play a major role in his death. You see, Swilling is described in early state histories as steady, likable, courageous, kind-hearted, generous, public-spirited, and always ready to assist others. But all that comes with a huge caveat of when he was sober. Now, Swilling didn't just like to drink, though he was very fond of whiskey and other liquors, but he was a morphine addict as well. By his own account, Swilling had received some sort of head wound way back in 1854. Apparently, his skull was cracked after being struck by the barrel of a heavy revolver during some unspecified incident. He also had a bullet in his left side from the same altercation. So, he started taking morphine for the pain. And in something that is eerily similar to our own modern opioid crisis, he quickly became addicted and had a full-blown habit by at least the time he was in Phoenix. While hopped up on morphine and drunk to boot, he was known to go on what the histories understatedly call sprees, which seemed to encompass all the drunken behaviors you might expect. Well, in 1878, his wife sent him on a trip to go retrieve the remains of a friend who had been killed by Apaches. As a fun side note, the friend in question was Jacob Snively, the same man who found gold along the Gila, which had led to the short-lived boomtown of Gila City. This trip, taken with some friends, was supposed to help sober him up a little. However, during this same time, while he was away from home and any good alibis, a stage wagon was robbed near Wickenburg, 
and one of the suspects happened to look like Swilling. Swilling himself didn't help the situation when he heard about the robbery and the description of the suspects, and perhaps under the influence a little, joked to his companion that, hey, that sounds like us. The pair were immediately arrested on suspicion of having robbed the coach. Eventually, he would be held in the jail in Yuma for this crime, where his health suddenly deteriorated, both due to the jail's conditions and the cumulative effects of his addictions. He died on August 12, 1878, at the age of 48. It's only after his death that evidence came forward showing that he had nothing at all to do with the stage robbery. So Swilling kind of has this dual legacy in Arizona history. He was a scout, one of those who helped find gold around Prescott, the founder of Phoenix, and, you know, the man who revived the Hohokam canals. But at the same time, historian Thomas Sheridan dismisses him as, quote, a morphine addict and a violent drunk who died in Yuma prison in 1878 after being accused of robbing a stage, end quote. I feel this latter summary kind of gives Swilling short shrift, seeing as how alcohol flowed like water in the American West and, you know, Swilling was innocent. Swilling himself wrote a letter while in jail where he confessed to his addictions, admitted that he couldn't break free from them, and described how the morphine and strong drink caused him to go mad at times and to be abusive toward his wife and friends. But, he argues, when he was himself, that wasn't the case. Quote, I have no remorse of conscience for anything I have ever done while in my sane mind. End quote. And from a little later down, quote, From the governor down to the lowest Mexican in the land have I extended my hospitality, and oh my God, how am I paid for it all? End quote. It appears Swilling was cared for in his final moments by some friends known as the Hodges family, and buried in one of their plots in the Yuma Pioneer Cemetery. If his grave was ever marked, then the headstone or cross has since disappeared. In fact, his final resting place remained something of a mystery for years, as no death certificate or any other documentation of his internment exists. It wouldn't be until late 2008 that a small headstone would be placed on the grave in the Yuma Pioneer Cemetery that is likely, but not yet definitively proven, to be Swilling's final resting place. Up in Phoenix, in 1931, Governor George W.P. Hunt oversaw a small ceremony where the Maricopa chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution unveiled a plaque in the memory of Swilling and his wife, Trinidad. If you want to see it today, it's on the fountain next to the County City Administration Building on Washington Street, just past First Avenue in Phoenix. After Swilling, we come to someone who really has been at the periphery of our story for some time now, but I just couldn't find a good way to fit him into the narrative. So now, allow me to introduce you to the prosperous Tucson merchant, Esteban Ochoa. Esteban Ochoa was born in the Mexican state of Chihuahua in 1831, the son of a miner and rancher. The family could trace its roots all the way back to Hernán Cortés's expedition to Mexico in the early 1500s, 
which is pretty impressive. As a teenager, Ochoa left home to make his fortune, joining his brother's freight company that went along the Santa Fe Trail all the way to Independence, Missouri. It was while doing this work that Ochoa learned English, though he had little in the way of formal education. But what he did have was quite the business mind, and in his early 20s he had his own store in Mesilla, New Mexico. Over the next several years, his operation proliferated with branch stores and a flour mill near Las Cruces. He was prominent enough that Ochoa was one of the delegates to those initial conventions talking about forming the independent territory of Arizona in the late 1850s. During this time, he would partner with a man named Pickney R. Tully to form the Mercantile and Freighting Company of Tully and Ochoa, which would make both men rich. Freighting was big business in that time, when most goods and food had to be shipped overland from somewhere else. During one business venture, Tully and Ochoa sent a supply train to Tucson and Tubac. When this train sold out of goods in a matter of hours, Ochoa sensed a business opportunity to open new locations, and he himself would move to Tucson in 1860. Then comes the dramatic set piece of Ochoa's life that the patriotic American historians love to recount so much. After the Civil War broke out and the rebels took control of Tucson, a Confederate officer came around one day to have a pleasant little chat with Don Esteban. In brief, the officer said that he knew Ochoa was an outspoken sympathizer of the Yankees, but surely now the businessman could see that the Union had been driven off and that it was time to swear allegiance to the Confederate States of America. If not, it would be this officer's disagreeable duty to confiscate Ochoa's property and evict him from the territory. Now, this is the part where the patriotic music starts swelling in the background, because Ochoa is said to have replied to this request and warning with all the civility and courtesy of a true gentleman, saying that he owed all he had in the world to the United States, and it would be impossible for him to swear allegiance to any other power. That being the case, he asked, by when should he be prepared to leave his property? With his answer given, Ochoa was able to select one of his many horses, fill a pair of saddlebags with food and clothing, gather a rifle and 20 rounds of ammunition, and was escorted out of town. He then rode eastward, braving hundreds of miles of Apache-infested desert until he safely arrived in New Mexico you can probably see why the Americans loved that story so much. After the Union took back Arizona, Ochoa again set up shop in Tucson and worked on growing his business. As I said, he had an astute entrepreneurial mind, and Tolly and Ochoa prospered. At its peak, the company employed hundreds and had more than $100,000 worth of freighting equipment. The company sold wagons, Harnesses, dry goods, clothing, hardware, glassware, liquor, boots, shoes, and provisions. Additional stores opened in Fort Bowie and Camp Grant. He and his partner also got into other business interests, such as mining copper in the Santa Ritas, owning two smelting furnaces, and running thousands of sheep. It's said that Ochoa also experimented with growing cotton, along with fruit trees near Tucson. Business wasn't uniformly good, as the Apaches still took every opportunity to harass freight wagons. 
Though Ochoa's drivers were known to pay the Apaches off by offering them some goods for safe passage, the natives would occasionally conduct raids on them. One such raid stole all their cattle, which were taken to a place north of the Salt River where the Apache turned the animals into jerky. And apparently that place became known as Jerked Beef Butte. If anyone in Gila County can confirm whether it's still called that, I would be indebted to you forever. Ochoa is described as soft-spoken, short, with a dark complexion and a neatly trimmed beard. More importantly, he's remembered as being liberal with his wealth, kind, generous, brave, and resourceful. He was considered one of Tucson's leading citizens, building a magnificent home with a yard that even included a peacock. In 1871, the 40-year-old Ochoa married 16-year-old Altagracia Salazar in a splendid wedding that included a fine ball. The union would produce one son, also named Esteban, and the couple would have a foster daughter named Juana. In the political arena, Ochoa was prominent enough to serve three times in the Territorial Assembly, and in 1875 would be elected mayor of Tucson in a 187-40 to 40 vote. He would also join Arizona Governor Anson P.K. Safford in a quest to actually start a public education system in the territory, ultimately donating the land for Tucson's first public school. And when funds fell short, Ochoa personally stepped in to finance the completion of the building. Unfortunately, Ochoa's career took a downturn in the 1880s with the arrival of the railroads, which made freighting obsolete. Sheridan passes along a symbolic story when, in November 1880, a locomotive literally ran into two Tolly and Ochoa wagons, destroying them and killing the mules harnessed to them. The company didn't go bankrupt, but business was sharply curtailed and Ochoa lost a lot to pay off his creditors. He would die at the age of 57 on October 27, 1888, while in Las Cruces, New Mexico. In 1940, his family paid for his remains to be moved to Tucson so he could be buried next to his wife. Since we are talking all about legacy today, it's no surprise that Ochoa Street in Tucson is named after him, along with Ochoa Elementary School. I highlight Don Estevan's life, both because he lived a fascinating one, but also his success shows how in 19th century Tucson, a Mexican expat with a good head on his shoulders could become one of the most well-respected citizens of the town. I won't pretend that racism didn't exist then, it most certainly did, but it didn't necessarily have to hold you back. And boy, did Ochoa not let anything hold him back. Now, the last two people I want to flesh out just a bit more are the two brothers who have cropped up frequently in our story so far, William and Granville Alry. Honestly, I underestimated how much we would run into them, which is why I didn't flesh them out from the get-go. But let's correct that with all too brief sketches of both. Now, William was born in Virginia on August 13, 1816, and was the oldest of nine children. The family would eventually move to Missouri, but William moved to Texas as a young man and joined in the revolution against Mexico. He was actually stationed at the Alamo, 
and was only spared the fate of the other defenders because he was sent as a courier about a week before the Mexican army broke through the defenses. However, he would be with Sam Houston at the Battle of Jacinto, where Santa Ana was captured. In 1842, he was also part of something called the Mir Expedition, one final push south of the Nueces River by members of the Republic of Texas. This expedition was a disaster, and William was one of nearly 250 Texans captured and actually forced marched to Mexico City. It's during this captivity that he survived a death lottery, where their captors executed one out of every ten men. Believe it or not, it came down to being blindfolded and picking beans from a pot, with one black bean for every nine white ones. And well, William got lucky. After being eventually released, William would marry Ines Garcia, a Mexican woman from Durango, in 1848, and the pair would head off to the California goldfields. Failing to strike it rich, they would come to Tucson in 1856. Here, a small ranching operation made him a prominent citizen. He would also work for the Butterfield Overland Mail Service and serve as sheriff several times. I should note also that he fought two duels, killing both his opponents. Most of his property was confiscated during the Civil War because he, like most Americans in Tucson, was a Southern partisan, but he was eventually able to get his property back. As we saw back in episode 48, he was appointed Tucson's first American mayor in 1864, despite his Confederate sympathies. Now, William's biggest uh, contribution to Arizona history is still ahead of us in the form of the infamous Camp Grant Massacre, which we will get to in our main narrative very soon. Just to wrap things up with him, though, he will die in Tucson on March 31st, 1887. As for his brother Granville, we talked about how he tried to relieve the doomed crab expedition in 1857 and was actually sent to the Confederate Congress in 1861 as kind of sort of a delegate. Granville had been born in Virginia on March 12, 1825, making him just shy of nine years younger than his brother. After the family moved to Missouri, Granville studied law and actually passed the bar in 1848. He would move to Texas and California before finally landing in Arizona, working as a lawyer and then district judge. Then came the Crab Expedition. We covered that back in episode 29. And then the Civil War. After he could not take his seat in the Confederate Congress, he served under General Sibley, the Confederate commander in New Mexico. After the South had the snot beat out of it, he took an oath of allegiance to the Union in October 1865. And funny enough, though we won't really see much of him from here on out, his political career only went up from there. He would serve in the territorial legislature three times, and twice served as Speaker of the House. In 1880, he was actually elected as the delegate to the U.S. Congress, serving two terms in that office. In 1884, he was even a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Following this, he returned to Arizona, where he continued to practice law in the now ghost town of Adamsville in Pinal County. He died there of throat cancer 
on January 11, 1891. For their efforts, the Aori brothers are honored with their own street in Tucson. Though, as you might have gathered, their legacy is somewhat complicated. Both were leading men in their time, serving in important political offices. But at the same time, one is blamed for the death of more than 100 men, women, and children, while the other literally fought against the Union. History is rarely black and white, but these two, I think, are definitely pushing into the darker gray area. Well, we're going to leave it here for this week. Originally, I also wanted to talk about Judge Charles Trumbull Hayden, but it appears time has gotten away from me, so I'll have to squeeze him into a future episode. In fact, now that I've tried this and am pretty happy with the results, I might push pause on the narrative at certain times going forward to keep highlighting the more colorful individuals who helped make Arizona what it is. But join me next week for the last episode before my break, when we will discuss the tragic story of the Pennington family, a tale that I have been itching to tell you all about for more than a year. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.